And we're continuing our series through the life and ministry of Jesus across all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order. And, and last week, we ended at a turning point of sorts in the ministry of Jesus. It's around the one-year mark of what would go on to be a three-year period of ministry. The Pharisees are plotting with their political rivals, the Herodians, to assassinate Jesus. And while Jesus is being adored by the masses as a wonder-working rabbi and a great teacher, he's not being widely received as their Messiah. And over the course of the next several studies, we're going to see Jesus begin to focus in on speaking to his disciples rather than the crowd. Even though there's some big events coming up, we're going to find that those are lots of people listening in as Jesus speaks to his disciples specifically. And this week, we're going to see how Jesus handles one of the biggest, most important decisions he will ever make, choosing the men who would go on to become the 12 apostles the men whom history will come to know as the fathers of the early church, the men who will take the ministry of Jesus and run with it once he's left the earth. This is a huge decision for Jesus. But what we see in Jesus is going to teach us a lot about how we should approach big decisions in our own lives. And the good news is it's much simpler than you might think. So picking up right where we left off last week, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Mark 3, and then we're going to switch over to Luke 6. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark 3, And we're going to start in verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. It says, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. And so the idea is he's he's on the coast. He's literally on on a beach, and there's fishing boats there. And Jesus tells the disciples, the crowd is getting really excited, really worked up. Get me a boat. Let me hop in a boat. That way he can go away from the shore a bit. Everyone can see him. Everyone can hear him. And I also think Jesus just wants a modicum of personal space. You know, Jesus is a man, so he's not some superhero who isn't bothered by people doing this and being right up in his face all the time. He needs like a, a, a little bit of space. He finds that as tiring as the rest of us do. So Jesus says, guys, I just need a little bit of space. Get a boat for me. And he's going to hop in the boat and do that. And, and one of the things I love about Jesus is he's so in tune with his own personal limits, if you notice that, in terms of being exhausted, in terms of being tired. One of the things that amazes me about Christ is that we never see him snap at somebody or sin because of exhaustion, even though when you look at a minister, he ministered till he was completely empty, but then as soon as he was empty, he was like, we're done, and he went away because he knew if he stayed, it would be much more likely that he would fall into temptation and sin. So he's so in touch with his personal limits that he knows when he's done. And then he doesn't just sit and do nothing and stay in that state. He rests. He sleeps. He prays. He spends time with the Father. He does something that's going to refresh him so that he can minister again effectively. would be wise to follow his example as all of us are familiar with snapping at people and sinning from exhaustion. So... Uh, Verse 10 going on, it says, For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You're the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. As we've shared before, Jesus simply is not looking for the endorsement of demons. You know, he's not really looking for cheerleaders who are demons. 
He doesn't want their endorsement or their praise, no publicity from them, so he just tells them, be quiet. In Matthew's gospel, we find that in this same interaction, Jesus warns the people he's healing not to make him known. And the more you study that, the more you you begin to get the sense that it's probably because he didn't want anybody's political zealotry forcing him to become this political savior that people were looking for. We've talked about this before. The, The Jews really expected the Messiah to help them overthrow Rome and return to a place of prominence on the world political stage. And Jesus didn't want word to get around from these people that this guy could overthrow the Romans. Let's go rally around him, put him on our shoulders and go start a riot with the Romans. And so Jesus says, just keep it to yourself that I've healed you. And sadly, a similar thing still happens today all the time. People take Jesus and turn him into who they want him to be, the champion of the cause that they want him to champion. And what Jesus would say is he would say, listen to what I actually taught, read my word, understand what the gospel really is, and don't turn me into something that I'm not. Because you can turn Jesus into whatever you want if you take only certain parts of it. And that happens all over the world. It happens in all kinds of churches, in all kinds of organizations. And Jesus' response was, just stay quiet about that. I'm here for the purpose of the gospel. Let's switch over now to Luke chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 12. Verse 12 of Luke 6. It says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray, and continued, then you might want to underline, all night in prayer to God. All night in prayer to God. Anybody ever done that? I mean, I think if I, if I attempted it, I would be out after like five minutes. Anybody ever done the ridiculous thing where you're like, you know, I'm going to have my prayer time when I get into bed tonight. Lord, I just, you know, it's it's just just like no point. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to have an in-depth study time with the Lord before I go to sleep tonight. It's like, no, no, you're not. No, you're not. You know, all you see is you have the portion you want to read, and then all you imagine in your head is the word sleep in big letters at the bottom. So you're like, blah, 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 Jesus healed some people. Jesus taught something sleep. Okay, awesome. So Jesus goes, and he actually stays awake all night in prayer to God. And the first thing we need to pick up is Jesus once again faithfully honoring his heavenly Father. It's clear that Jesus wouldn't dream of making such a big decision without consulting his Father first. Husbands, tell me if I'm wrong here, but there are certain decisions we would never make without consulting our wives. Most of us would be wise enough to say, I'm not going to get into interior decorating without consulting my wife. What? Black is a great color. It goes with everything, you know? So I painted the walls black. And the reason that we would consult our wives on certain types of decisions before acting is because we value our lives very dearly. So as believers, we belong to Christ. Just as a husband and wife belong to each other, we belong to Christ. And so we need to make sure that we don't dream of making certain important decisions in our lives without first consulting the one whom we belong to, which is Jesus. And we know from his word that Jesus always directs us to the Father. And so Jesus would tell us, go to the Father on these big decisions. Make sure you're on the same page. And going to the Father in prayer on major decisions accomplishes two things. You're going to write these down. Firstly, it honors the Father rightly. It honors the Father Just as you are honoring your wife if you're a husband and you ask her opinion and make sure you're on the same page before you act on something big, you're honoring the Father when you go to him and say, I don't want to act without knowing that we're on the same page, that I'm doing what you want me to do. Secondly, it gives us access to the Father's wisdom. 
the Father's wisdom. There's a practical side to this where I just need to be blunt. Uh, So I'm going to put it like this. You and I are too stupid to handle most of life's big decisions. That's the bottom line. We're just too stupid to handle most big decisions. And most of the train wrecks in our lives, when you follow the trail all the way back, find their origins in some kind of bad decision that we made without consulting God. If you disagree with me on this, it's only because you're further proving my point. If you think about it, you'll get it. We constantly make large decisions that don't work out, and then we say, God, where were you? And God says, where were you when you were making the decision? I, I, will, I certainly wasn't invited to that conversation, but now it's, now it's my fault that it didn't work out. And the reason I say we're too stupid is because we can't see the future. There are so many dynamics and possibilities at play in the future that we don't know about. There's so much we don't know about. We can always make the best decision possible with the information we have, but the whole point is that God has the information that we don't have. He has the information we don't have. And so when we consult him, when we ask for wisdom, he's going to guide our thinking in a way that takes into account all those future variables and possibilities that we don't know about. So blessed is the man or woman who recognizes their need for wisdom and seeks the Lord for it. James 1.5 says this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, that's all of us, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So God says, if you need wisdom, ask me for it. I'll give it to you. It's as simple as that. And the reason God does that is, is because God is saying, when you ask me, you're honoring me. And you're elevating God as the one who has wisdom. And he says, when you do that, that blesses me, that honors me. And so in response, I'm going to give you the wisdom that you're asking for. You'll notice that it doesn't say, if any of you wants God to make the decision for you, ask him, and he will. You'll notice it doesn't say, if any of you wants to hear the answer to your question, ask, and God will tell you. It says, if you need wisdom, ask God for it, and he'll give you wisdom. Wisdom to do what? Wisdom to make the right decision. And so often what I find is I I find myself or or others that I'm talking to and I'm counseling and they say, I have this big decision. I've prayed to God and I haven't heard the answer from God. As I was studying, I realized, well, because God doesn't promise he's going to give you the answer. He promises he's going to give you wisdom. So what it means is you pray, you ask for wisdom, you believe in faith that God has given you wisdom and that he's guiding your thoughts even as you make the decision. He's in the thought process for you. And then you step out in faith, you be decisive, and you make the decision knowing that you've asked the Lord for wisdom, believing that he's given it to you. So don't allow yourself to be paralyzed when you need to be decisive because you're waiting for God to say, it's option B, it's door number two. He very, very rarely does that. What he does is he says, I've given you wisdom. I'm with you. Go forward in confidence. He's going to guide your thought process. He's going to give you the wisdom as you process it. You're processing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That was one of the biggest things that helped me in life with big decisions was realizing that as I prayed, I could have confidence that God was in my thought process. Even though it felt very unspiritual, even though it feels like I'm just sitting there thinking, God is guiding my thought process. He's present with me. I've asked him for wisdom and he's giving it to me. And so I can go forward in confidence. Jesus knows that in a couple of years, he's going to die. He's going to rise victorious from the dead. He's going to leave the earth and send his disciples the Holy Spirit. 
Those events are, are coming sooner than later. They're just a couple of years away, and he has to decide who's going to take his ministry when he's gone. He's got to pick 12 men who are going to be with him on a full-time basis. So we had to be praying, God, you know all their annoying habits, Father. Help me to choose wisely. Help me to choose wisely. It's a huge decision. How, how huge? Well, well, you and I are in part here today because of how Jesus made this decision, because of the work and ministry of those 12 men who started the first church. And because Jesus doesn't want to get the decision wrong, he spends the night in prayer with his father, making sure they're on the same page. And then he chooses them, as we'll see, in confidence, in confidence. Now, this is God in the flesh. He doesn't have a sin nature, and yet he spends all night in prayer. All night in prayer. If Jesus, God in the flesh, sinless nature, doesn't make life-altering decisions without spending significant time in prayer, how much more should we spend significant time in prayer before we make life-altering decisions? How many of us will spend infinitely more time asking other people their opinion instead of praying? We'll spend infinitely more time Googling information about our decision rather than asking God, who's really the ultimate Wikipedia. So just ask God and go straight to the source. Verse 13, it says, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. At this point, Jesus probably had a couple of hundred disciples who were following him. It says, And from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. So why twelve? Why 12? It's a really interesting question. Why 12? 12 in the scriptures is the number related to God's kingdom government on the earth. And we see this in the Old Testament because there are how many tribes in the tribes of Israel? It's 12 tribes. That was God's preferred form of government for the nation of Israel. So in choosing 12 men as apostles, God is literally saying, Jesus is saying, I am creating a new form of government. I am representing myself through a new means on the earth, and that means is the church. And just as there were 12 tribes as God's system in the nation of Israel, now we're going to start the church on the backs of 12 men. It's a new government, a whole new thing that God is doing. We also see the word apostle for the first time, and the word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, which simply means one who is sent. You can write that down. It means one who is sent or one who is commissioned. And the idea is Jesus is going to equip and train them for one purpose. The purpose is to send them out. That's the ultimate goal. And while there are missionaries today, there are sent ones and commissioned ones, there can be no more uppercase A apostles. We always call the 12, they're the uppercase A apostles. And the reason we say there can't be any more of them is because in Acts chapter 1, it talks about the process they used to replace Judas Iscariot after he had betrayed Jesus and committed suicide. And the criteria they had for being one of the 12 apostles was you had to have been with Jesus from the time he was baptized by John the Baptist all the way up to his ascension at the end of his ministry on earth. So there can be no more uppercase A apostles. Even guys like Timothy, Barnabas, and Paul would be considered lowercase A apostles because they weren't with Jesus for that whole time. They don't really meet the criteria laid out in Acts 1. Well, in Mark's account of this exact story, it's on your outlines. In Mark chapter 3, 14 and 15, it tells us why Jesus chose these 12 men to become apostles. You're going to want to underline some things here. It says, then he appointed the 12 that they might, and then underline this, be with him. 
that they might be with him and that he might, and then underline, send them out to preach and to have power, you want to underline power, to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. You know, when we respond to the call of Jesus, we we respond to the call to follow him, we are making the decision to become his disciple. You can fill that in on your outlines. It's the decision to become his disciple. Nowhere in the scriptures does it distinguish between being a Christian and being a disciple. You know, being a disciple is not like the black belt of being a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. To follow Jesus is to be a disciple. And the word disciple simply means student or learning. And so if you know nothing about Jesus, when you make the decision to follow him, you become his disciple. It's not about knowledge you possess. It's about an attitude you have towards Jesus. To be a disciple means you are committed to learning from him. You are committed to following him. And as he teaches you things, you're going to do everything in your power to apply them to your lives. So when somebody says, I've become a Christian, but I'm not really ready you know, to start reading the Bible. I'm not really ready to start doing the things Jesus asks me to do. That person is not a disciple. That person is not a believer. Because in the scriptures, believer, Christian, follower, they all mean disciple. It's all the same thing. It's the only rank that there is in Christianity for any of us. To be a believer, to follow Jesus, is to be a disciple. And the first thing you need to know about being a disciple of Jesus is that it means you've been called to be with him. That's the calling, to be with him above everything else because everything else will flow out of being with him. Everything else. Before Jesus sends the disciples out to do anything, he has them pour themselves into a relationship with him. And so too, each of us is called to make sure that nothing ever takes priority over our calling to be with Jesus, to be with him in prayer, to speak with him throughout the day in the flow of our lives, to be in his word. Being with Jesus is the foundation of our whole faith. And I don't know if you've realized this yet about our faith, but the second you stop being with Jesus, it all becomes very dead very fast because it's all about being with Jesus. It's amazing to me that Jesus doesn't come up with a multi-step plan and say, I've chosen the 12, and now you guys are coming in at the bottom of the pyramid. I've created this graph. And as we go through different steps, you're going to climb the pyramid till eventually you get up here to apostle. It's a super level. And then you get a badge, and you can use the name apostle in front of your name on a business card. Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, listen, come and live life with me. Come and do life with me. Come and be with me. Because he knows in doing that, they're going to naturally learn from him and they're going to naturally become more like him. It's a principle that applies to every single one of us. You become like, studies tell us, the five people you spend the most time with. That's why there's sayings like, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. We become like the people that we associate with. Jesus says, so come and associate with me and you will become like me. He's chosen these 12 men to be apostles. He's chosen them to become something in the future. So he doesn't call them, and they are apostles. They're going to be apostles in the future. So the question is, how is he going to turn these common, untrained, unspectacular men into apostles? By having them be with him. That's that's his whole plan. Just be with me. And the reason we know it worked is because we're here today, reading about it, studying it seeing the same principle work in our lives. It worked. His whole plan was to be with him, and that's his whole plan for us as well. Everything flows out of that. 
After Jesus ascended back to heaven at the end of his earthly ministry, there was a time when the Sanhedrin, the high ruling religious council of Israel, banned the apostles from preaching in Jesus' name. The apostles said, I can't do it. Sorry, I can't do it. And this is what it says in Acts 4. It says, of the Sanhedrin, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. They looked at these men and they said, there is a transformation here. They, they do not speak and act like their personal history says they should. When we go into their personal history, it doesn't add up what we're seeing in front of us right now. How, how can that produce this? And the answer they discover is, oh, they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. You know, when God calls us to ministry, it's a, it's a specific mission that he's calling us to. And whenever he calls you to a specific mission, he's going to give you what verse 15 says. He's going to give you power to accomplish that mission. And I've learned that this applies to everything. He gives you power to evangelize. He gives you power to be his witnesses, as it says in uh, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Even down to parenting, he gives you power to be a mom. He gives you power to be a dad. He equips you for the task. Even in marriage, he gives you power to be a husband, power to be a wife, power to fulfill the calling that he's put on your life. He never calls you to something and says, good luck with that. This is going to be fun to watch. He always equips you for the mission and the tasks that he has called you to. And often God will call people to a task or to a ministry, but they won't step out in faith because they don't believe that God is really going to empower them. They don't believe God's really going to come through. They want the empowering to come first, and then they want to step out. And it never, ever works that way in Scripture. God always says, no, 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 I call you. You respond to the calling and you will discover that I've empowered you. On the flip side, the worst thing you can do is step out in faith in something that you're not called to do. And I need to say this because there are always people who hear this sort of message and they hear what they want to hear and they go, I'm going to go start a cell phone store. Have you ever owned a business? No, I have owned a cell phone though. (laughs) I'm going to mortgage my house and start this business. And then when it doesn't work, they're like, you said if I stepped out in faith, it's like I said if you were called to step out in faith. It's not like a magic thing where you can just do whatever you want and then God equips you to do it. It's a calling. Don't ever step out in faith into another person's calling and expect God to equip you the way that he equipped them. You've got your own calling. One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts is a fantastic example of people stepping out in somebody else's calling. I'm I'm just going to read it to you. It's in Acts 19 says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they're going to name drop Jesus, even though they don't know him. They're going to try and bootleg off Paul's anointing. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, Siva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. So these seven guys go in and they're like, This really can't be that hard. We'll just name drop Paul and the demons will leave. And the evil spirit answered, I I wish somebody would make a a movie of this because this is what I see happening. They're in a house and they're like, come out in the name of Jesus of whom Paul preaches. And there's this person in the corner. You sort of imagine them turn. And this is what it says. The person possessed says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, 
but who are you? <laughs> Theologically, we call that an oh crap moment, okay? <laughs> and you just imagine the moment when those guys go, oh, this is gonna go south in a hurry. And then it has this wonderful verse, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt upon them, seven of them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And I, and I firmly agree with the position that when you get in a fight and you're the one who ends up naked, you've lost. It's just one of the ways you can tell is when you leave running and naked, you lost the fight. And that's what happens when you step out in somebody else's calling. He called them to do that. He has called you to your own unique calling. Back to our text in Luke 6. This is the list of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose. Let's go through this, and we're just going to meet them all, go through the dirty dozen here a little bit. Verse 14, first name is Simon, whom he also named Peter. And this is an interesting moment here because Simon is a good Jewish name, but Jesus, when he chooses him to become an apostle, changes his name to Peter, Petros, Cephas, which simply means the rock which is an awesome nickname. It's extra cool to me because The Rock was my favorite wrestler when I was growing up. And he had this signature line he would say, which many of you will know, he'd say, if you smell what The Rock is cooking, is what he'd say. So in my head, now I I imagine how awesome it would be if at the end of Peter's epistles, he would be like, uh, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you smell what The Rock is cooking. So that's what I imagine. He had this really, really cool nickname. But I don't just love him because he had a cool nickname. I love that Jesus does that because later on in his ministry, Jesus and Peter are going to have this interaction. Jesus said to them, Matthew 16, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. He's saying you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so the name Jesus gives Peter is prophetic, and it speaks his future destiny over him, who he would become. He is not the rock when he gets this nickname. And if you read how Peter handled Jesus' crucifixion, you'll see that displayed firsthand. He's going to make a ton of spectacular mistakes. He's going to put his foot in his mouth more than once. Peter is older than most of the disciples. He's 19 or 20. And as you read the gospel, you sort of get the sense that Peter is one of these 19 or 20-year-olds who who wants to put his arm around Jesus, who's 31, and say, Jesus, you know, you've just got to be patient with these guys. They're not as mature, you know, as you and I are. And they they don't understand the deep things of life like we do. You know, I understand, Jesus. Just be gracious with them. That's sort of the vibe that I get I get from Peter. If he if he had a a a life sort of anthem or, or phrase, it would probably be ready, fire, aim. That's how you'd categorize Peter's life, is ready, fire, aim. And we're going to find out something really interesting. Peter is always packing, as in he's always carrying a concealed weapon. Peter carried a small sword that was called a machaira, which was actually illegal to carry under Roman rule, but he kept it tucked away in his cloak. And even after walking with Jesus for three years, on the night that they come to arrest Jesus, Peter's still packing. He still got his little concealed weapon and he uses it to cut off a servant's ear to which Jesus has to tell him, that's not how we're going to spread the gospel, Peter, okay? After three years, you're like, really? He's a bit of a loose cannon. He could be courageous one minute and and cowardly the next. And that's why we love him because we, we see ourselves in Peter and we find hope in Peter that if God could do what he did through Peter, then there's got to be hope for us as well. 
But all signs point to Peter having been married. Uh, Some of you may remember that he runs a fishing business with Andrew, James, and John. He's not poor. He has a successful business. He has servants. He leaves his servants to take care of his father and his mom when he leaves uh, to follow Jesus. And like Simon, who was renamed Peter, every single one of us who's put their hope in Jesus has been given a new name too. We've been given a future and a destiny, and and we're going to mess up. We're going to put our foot in our mouth sometimes too. But sometimes we need to be reminded that we're not who we were. The Bible says we are a new creation, and Jesus has said, I now define you. I define you as my son. I define you as my daughter. I've given you a new name. And his encouragement to us is you need to see yourself the way that I see you, and you need to let me be the one who defines you. One of the most encouraging and inspiring things you can ever read is, is to go through the life of Peter and see the transformation that takes place once he's filled with the Holy Spirit and receives the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. He goes from the man who denied even knowing Jesus three times, even to a little servant girl, a man who is a coward in his most testing moment, to that same man in that same city, just over 40 days later, standing up in front of a hostile crowd, preaching the gospel, delivering one of the greatest messages that has ever been taught, and seeing 3,000 people come to follow Jesus. It's his first sermon. It's like mind-blowing to me. I'm still waiting to get to 1,000 people responding to one of the messages that I did. He gets 3,000 on one day. And as a point of interest, Peter, whenever the 12 apostles are listed, Peter's always listed first because Peter is the leader of them underneath Jesus, obviously. And Judas Iscariot is always listed last, obviously. It says, then Andrew, his brother, and Andrew's not a Hebrew name, it's a Greek name, which is why many people believe it's a nickname that Jesus gives him. And Andrew just means manly, or as we'd say today, a man's man. It's a pretty awesome nickname. Then you have James and John. Mark 3 tells us that Jesus called James and John Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. He gives the most awesome nicknames, sons of thunder. And it also helps us to have a better idea of who the disciples were. Most of them would have been in their mid-teens, but they get nicknames like manly and sons of thunder. So these are not like, Jesus didn't go around and say, I'm looking for the 12 wimpiest losers I can find. I need men who, when they speak, you can barely hear them. That's what I need. Men who are very, very soft-spoken who will say, I'm spending my life with Jesus now. That's not who the disciples are. They're sort of rough and tumble, rough around the edges guys. They're blue-collar guys. Church history says that John was a mountain of a man. And one little interaction which really sums up James and John and just how they're always ready to throw down is in Luke's gospel when Jesus goes into a town. The town doesn't receive Jesus. So James and John ask this logical question. How shall we handle rejection? Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Let's just burn them. Let's just kill them all. And Jesus has to remind them. You sort of see Jesus going, It's like the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they're like, oh, right, right, right. But it gives you some insight into their personalities. Next, we have Philip and Bartholomew. Philip is also a Greek name, but historians believe his parents gave it to him because it simply means fond of horses. 
I'm sure he never got made fun of at school for that. So if you were from a good Jewish family in those days, they would give you a Hebrew or Aramaic religious name from an Old Testament character generally. So when Philip is called Philip by birth, it tells you that his parents were most likely only culturally Jewish. They weren't really devoutly Jewish. They may have been uh, members of the Herodian party that we talked about last week. And whenever Philip shows up, he's always witnessing to somebody. That's his gifting. He has a gifting as an evangelist. Bartholomew just means son of a plowman. So clearly his parents have an enormous vision for his life. Who names their kid that? But uh, most biblical scholars, interestingly, hold that Bartholomew and Nathaniel are one and the same person when you read about them in Scripture. The next person who's listed in verse 15 is Matthew. You might remember him from a few weeks ago. He was born Levi, and Jesus calls him Matthew. He's a tax collector who had turned his back on his faith and his own people to try and get rich by working for the Roman occupiers. Matthew left his trade to follow Jesus, and when he did that, he turned his back on Rome, and this left him in a place where nobody wanted him. The Romans hated him because he had turned his back on them. He could never go back. His own people hated him because he had sold them out to try and get rich working for the Romans. And so at this time, when nobody wants anything to do with him, Jesus begins calling him Matthew, which means the gift of God. And you get the sense that for Matthew, he needed to hear that a lot during that time. He's such an interesting choice for an apostle because on the surface, he's useless. Who's he going to minister to? Not the Romans, not the Jews. We find that in Matthew's ministry after Jesus' ascension, the destiny and the future of Matthew is going to be to take the gospel to a completely different continent. That's how far he's going to have to go before anybody will even listen to him. But that's something that never would have happened if he had had any other option. God was in all of that. Matthew was skilled in the art of shorthand notation, which is important because when you read Matthew's gospel and you read these long discourses, these messages Jesus gave, Matthew is writing those down verbatim. When I say he's skilled in shorthand, he can make quick enough notes that he can unpack using a shorthand technique to remember verbatim what Jesus said. So when he writes things like the Sermon on the Mount, that is verbatim what Jesus said. It's really, really neat. goes on and it says, And Thomas... And I can imagine Jesus praying a lot about this because Thomas is a real, the glass is half empty kind of guy. We've met him before. He's a pessimist. He's the Eeyore of the group. When we saw him uh, last week when Jesus goes back to Bethany, which is close to Jerusalem where people wanted to kill him, Thomas's encouragement to the group is, let us go also that we may die with him. Thanks, Mr. Speaking Faith. That's, that's exactly what I needed, you know, to pump up the disciples. We all know when Jesus is raised from the dead, Thomas is the one who responds to the news of the resurrection by saying, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is why he's often called Doubting Thomas. Everyone else is excited about the resurrection. It's a party and Thomas is like, nah, nah. He's the Eeyore of the group. Church history tells us that Thomas would later go to India as a missionary, and that's where he would end up. goes on, it says, James, the son of Alphaeus. This is a different James. This is not the brother of John. There's two James and the 12 apostles. And the name James is actually Jacob in Hebrew. And to distinguish this James from the other, he's referred to everywhere else in the Gospels as James the Less. Worst nickname ever, I think. <laughs> James the Less. The, the Greek word is the word micros, which means small, little, least, less, short, And so the general idea is he was a short, tiny, little guy, 
And so everyone would be like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with James. Which one? Short James. Oh, thanks so much for that. And then you have Simon called the Zealot. So who are the Zealots? They're not an underground indie band, even though that would be a great name for an indie band. I'm going to copyright that. Strong's Bible Dictionary describes them as fanatical Jewish nationalistic, a political sect who were revolutionary. They're also known as the Assassins. That is how you name a gang, just so you know. The Assassins. And they always carried concealed weapons, those Machaira swords that Peter carried as well. They believed that God has promised to make Israel great, and so they were all ready for the arrival of this political militant Messiah, and they always had their Machairas with them because they believed that essentially the call is going to go out one day. The Messiah is here. We're taking on the Romans. We're overthrowing them. And when that word spread, they were all going to pull out their swords and just start killing every Roman who was close to them. That's the plan. A little bit unhinged, I think, if you ask me. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says the zealots resorted to violence and assassination in their hatred of the foreigner. Can you imagine how awkward it was when Simon the Zealot and Matthew begin hanging out together? Oh, what do you do? Um, bit of this and that. Worked, uh, worked for Rome as a tax collector for a while. Aren't you Jewish? Yep. Yeah, what do, you, what do you do? Oh, I'm a zealot. Huh. Huh. And yet because of Jesus, they end up ministering side by side. And apart from Jesus, uh, get this, Matthew wouldn't have even been safe in the company of Simon the zealot. Simon, according to his political beliefs, would have killed him at the first opportunity. Literally. That's how serious it was. In Mark's gospel, Simon is called Simon the Canaanite, and it doesn't mean he's from Canaan. Canaanite is just Aramaic for zealous for the law as well. And it's the same thing as Simon the Zealot. Then it says in verse 16, Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. There were two Judases in the 12 apostles, unfortunately for the other Judas. Uh, the other Ju- Judas, we'll call him the good Judas, is also called Thaddeus in Luke's gospel. And most Bible scholars believe that the good Judas was nicknamed Thaddeus by Jesus. And the translation for Thaddeus is courageous or big heart. In Matthew's gospel, Thaddeus is used as his last name and Labius is used as his first name. The name Iscariot means man of Kerioth, which is a reference to where Judas the betrayer was from to help us distinguish between the two. And I'm sure that the good Judas, Thaddeus, was constantly saying things after the resurrection to the other disciples like, hey, um, if you guys ever like write a book about this or write this down, can you, can you be really sure to distinguish between me and the other Judas, you know? Because everywhere he went, he'd probably say, oh yeah, this is one of the 12 apostles. Really? Which one? Judas. Kill him. I'm Thaddeus. I'm the good Judas. And so this is pretty much his life, I'm sure. So they, they called him Thaddeus to try and distinguish him from the man who betrayed Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We generally uh, assume some things about the Last Supper. You you might know the Last Supper is the last meal Jesus has on his last night together with the disciples in Jerusalem. He shares a meal with them. And at that meal, Jesus tells his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And he says, it's going to be the person that I give a piece of bread to. And then he gives a piece of bread to Judas. And many of us know the line. He says, what you do, do quickly. And we usually assume that what Jesus is saying is, is just get it over with in some way. But that's not really what's going on. When Jesus does this, the disciples' heads are spinning and they're trying to wrap their heads around what's going on. 
But you need to understand, Jesus is in a room, and Judas Iscariot is in a room with guys who have nicknames like The Rock, Manly, Courageous, Sons of Thunder, Simon the Zealot. Two guys are packing weapons. And the idea when Jesus says that is, Judas, you need to get out of here because in two minutes you're going to be dead if you don't leave. That's why Jesus tells him, get out of here. I try and imagine what the scene would look like when Jesus rolls into town with these guys or just not be what you would expect. They did not have halos on their head as they walked around. They didn't walk around following Jesus going, you know, peace, my son, blessings to you, as they did that. They would like walk into town and it would be like sort of like a Western where there's Jesus and then these like 12 guys walking behind him in like the V, you know, like kicking up dust and everyone like grabs their children and like sort of, you know, puts, puts them inside. And then there's like James the Less, the short guy in the back, you know, who's just like, like hanging, hanging around, I think. So it would have been a really, really interesting scene. And just the contrast between how lofty the teachings of Jesus are, when you even think about them philosophically and intellectually, he's just teaching at a level that's up here. And yet his posse are guys who are like down here. You know, uh, when Jesus talks about, you know, there's this pearl, you know, that is worth a lot of money. You know, their contribution to the discussion is like, money's good. You know, it's like, okay. So it must have been so, so odd for people to see Jesus running with this group of guys. They must have been thinking, you know, you're a great teacher, but uh, you are a terrible judge of character. Like, what are you doing with these 12 guys. The 12 apostles are going to represent the everyman, the, the working man, the blue collar man. Paul is going to surface later as a completely different kind of cat. He's just completely different. He's highly educated. He's highly intelligent, highly articulate. One of the most brilliant minds that has ever walked the face of the earth. Paul's going to be something completely different. Jesus spends the night in prayer about the selection process because he wants to be in perfect alignment with the Father. He wants his will and the Father's will to be one and the same. And you can see the necessity of Jesus praying because if you were going to choose 12 guys to change the world, you probably wouldn't have picked these 12. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. I believe God chose these guys, these 12 apostles, so that when Christianity exploded, nobody would be able to say, well, of course, you have such academic, you know, luminaries as James and John, the sons of thunder, well-published, widely respected theologians in their own right. Nobody is able to say they're charismatic, they're brilliant, they're intelligent, they're connected, they're smart. Nobody's able to say that. We see the Sanhedrin marveling at the way they talk and finding that the only explanation is they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. And God gets all of the glory in that way. And so Paul is pointing out God loves to do things in a way where it's clear that it's him who's doing something. That's why he chose these men. The good news is that the same is true for you and I today, that God wants to use us in ways that would cause even us to say, really, me? Me? 
When I say this, I don't mean that everybody's called to stand up in front of a group of people and preach or lead worship or lead hundreds to Jesus, but God will use you to lead somebody to Christ who will have a bigger impact than you could ever imagine. God will use you to speak a word to somebody, and you'll have no idea the impact that it made. One of the great joys of heaven is going to be for faithful believers for the first time ever to be able to see what God used their obedience to do. And I don't believe that there's a single faithful believer who's not going to be completely blown away by what God did through them. God still loves to use people like you and I to do amazing, amazing things. Verse 17, it says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. So Tyre and Sidon are both up the coast north of Israel. Sidon is where modern-day Lebanon is. The big idea is that people are swarming to Jesus as his reputation expands as a miracle worker. As we said earlier, most people are not receiving him as their Messiah. And so Jesus is going to begin focusing in on teaching his disciples instead of the crowd. And this, where we're going to end today, is the setup for what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to begin studying next week. It's the most revolutionary message ever taught in history. You're You're not going to want to miss that. As we wrap up today, I want to point out just a a few things to you in closing. You know, the root word of disciple is the word discipline. It's the word discipline. And we learned that disciple means student or learning. And so following Jesus is a commitment to be disciplined about learning from him. That means that we don't cop out with statements like, I'm just not a reader. I'm just not a reader. Because none of us would ever go to college and pursue a doctorate in something and not read the material and expect understanding from the faculty when we say, here's the thing, I want to be a lawyer, but I'm not a reader. So what I'm going to do instead, I'm going to watch a lot of legal-oriented TV shows because that's, that's how I learn. I'm a visual learner. None of us would expect anybody to understand that. Jesus never says, I want you to be in my word or nature. You could go with nature. That's cool too. He doesn't say, if you're not a reader, I totally get it. Just watch Christian movies instead. Just, that's as good as my word. We're all called as disciples to be in the word of God, learning from it. And if you're having a hard time understanding his word, buy yourself a great commentary. Seriously, I, I checked it out. My favorite one in the world you can get from Amazon.ca for 30 bucks shipped. And there's a, a link on our website to that. You can just go to mynewhope.ca slash the word. And there's a link there to where you can buy that. And read that. It'll help you understand. It'll help you get into the Word. We each have a responsibility, though, to figure out how to be in God's Word on a daily basis. Secondly, as disciples of Jesus who belong to Jesus, it needs to be our custom to seek the Lord and pray on all major decisions. That needs to be one of the defining characteristics of what makes us Christians. You know, before the term Christian or Jew even existed, people who followed God were simply known as those who call upon the Lord. That was their defining characteristic. That's who we are. And I would encourage you, if at all possible, to fast as well over major decisions in your life. But it needs to be our custom to seek the Lord on every major decision. It just needs to be what we do. If someone says, hey, I need you to decide right now if you're going to take this new job. It needs to be our immediate response. Can can I have some time to pray about it? I wouldn't dream of making this decision without conferring with my Heavenly Father. wouldn't dream of doing it. 
And then finally, let me encourage you that Jesus built his church. The Bible says he turned the world upside down with unqualified people. And he still loves to do the same thing. One of my favorite sayings is that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So don't ever wait for God to give you everything you need before you think he can start using you. If he's called you, he's already given you everything you need. And it's all about him anyway. So if you're thinking, man, no one's going to take me seriously, they'll take God in you seriously. And it's all about him anyway. You don't want to miss out on being used by God to do amazing things. And here's the great news. In order to be used by God, you don't need to go through a course. You don't need to go to a school. You don't need to go through a training. Jesus says the whole training program is this, to be with him, to be with him, to pour yourself into a relationship with him. Jesus says the more time you spend with me, the more you will become like me. That is the whole program. That's the only reason we're here today is is to become more like Jesus and to be his disciples. That's it. So if you'll make that the priority of your life, I promise the day will arrive when you will look back on your life and you'll say, whoa, whoa, you used me to do what? That person turned out to be who? That comment changed what? Wow, wow. I promise that'll happen. Let's go ahead and pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Today is, is not about necessarily having a, a major emotional experience right now. It's about a commitment to be a disciple of Jesus. When we get home, when our week begins in earnest tomorrow, that we would begin to develop the attitude, God, I, I don't want to go into my day without consulting you. I don't want to go into a meeting without touching base with you quickly in prayer. I don't want to make major decisions without asking you for wisdom first. Uh, this is about the, a commitment to humility, enough humility to say, God, I need your wisdom. Mine is not sufficient. It's not enough. Father, will you help me to remember to consult you? It's a commitment to learn from him and be in his word. Father, thank you so much that in this life, you've never left us alone. You have given us the invitation to ask you for your wisdom. God, most of us would would jump at the opportunity to speak with our business role models or our ministry role models. But we have a better invitation. We have an invitation from you to receive an impartation of your wisdom. Father, we confess that we need that more than anything else in order to live with wisdom and discernment. So God, would you give us your wisdom for all the decisions that are in our lives and in our world right now? Would you give us your wisdom, Father? We need it more than anything else. And would you fill us with your peace, knowing that you've heard us? Would you fill us with faith to act, believing that we have the mind of Christ? You are guiding our thought process, God. You've not left us alone in the decision-making process when we've called upon you. Thank you that we don't have to go into life's biggest decisions and biggest moments alone. We can go with the mind of Christ and your wisdom, God. Thank you for that. Father, I pray as well you'd put a a hunger in us for your word, God. That as we read it, it would be life to us. It would be strength and peace and hope and joy. And that whatever resources are needed, 
to help every single one of us have a vibrant relationship with your word. God, would you lead us to them? Would you help us to find them? Would you help us to begin to build our lives on the truth and on the wisdom of your word so that we can live in wisdom, God? Father, we honor you. We trust you and we love you, Father. 